0: morning, we're drawn in our attention to a third message in the series that we have been doing on a spirit of generosity. Today we're focusing on the topic of generosity and ministry. We've been looking at the Gospel of Luke, at some different aspects of it that kind of percolate to the top to bring our attention to different ways that the Lord would like us to demonstrate generosity, and the first week we looked at generosity in relationships, specifically as it relates to how well and how do we forgive people that may have wounded us in the past and how that can become an open door or a hindrance to moving forward in the Lord. And we talked about the generosity of of that relationship. We've talked about uh, the generosity of hospitality last week. And today we're going to enter into a, a currency, again, that's, that's not a money currency, but it's the currency that God has deposited within each of us of our abilities and our time. And the theme is that every believer should not merely be a ministry consumer, but that we, in coming to the Lord and in coming to the church, need to understand that there are opportunities for us to be used of the Lord to impact the lives of others. And so we use the currency of the gifts that God has given us and the talents and abilities to touch the lives of others. And I'm going to ask if you would turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. I'm going to begin reading with verse 49 and then read all the way through the rest of this chapter and then into the first two verses of chapter 10. Luke chapter 9, verses 49 through chapter 10, verse 2. The Scripture begins with, Master, said John... We saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up into heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into the Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him, because he was heading for Jerusalem, And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Then he said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Heavenly Father, we depend entirely upon the leading of the Holy Spirit to reveal truth to us through your word. You have promised us that you would... Do this for us. And so, Father, today I ask that through the anointing of your spirit you would remove scales from our eyes and remove scales from our heart that we can capture the truth of your word and then that you give us the courage to respond to you in obedience of your desire to lead us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What I like about this passage of Scripture is that it gets us deeper into how to develop that heart of of generosity which is the wellspring for everything else that God desires to do. In fact, He desires that we would have a spirit of generosity that would be so pervasive in our life that we wouldn't be generous only in one area, but that there would be a spirit that in every aspect of our life we simply would be known as being generous people. And Jesus demonstrates this throughout His life. Within this passage of Scripture, in order for us to fully grasp it and understand it this morning, though I read it from front to back, we're going to study it from back to front because I believe that in each one of these segments there's something that we need to learn and that can help us as we go through it. And so we're going to divide it up differently. And from chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, we're going to talk about the generosity of service. Then we're going to look at the middle passage, and that will be the generosity of discipleship which in turn will then be based on what we read at the beginning is the generosity of costly grace. Generosity of service simply means that we give ourselves away to other people. Generosity of discipleship means that we give ourselves away to Jesus. And then the generosity of costly grace, we begin to look at what Jesus gave away for us that helps motivate us as we move forward. For those of you that have a bulletin, there's an outline written there. If you'd like to use that to take some notes and follow along, you can. The first thing I'd like to point out is the generosity of service. In Luke chapter 10, in the first two verses, it said that the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his Harvest field. Now there's some things about this particular passage of scripture that you can't understand fully unless you're familiar a little bit about the beginning of chapter 9 and the first couple of verses there that I did not read today but let me just highlight what happened there so that we can grab a hold of this as we move forward. In chapter nine in the first two verses, the Lord is sending out his twelve apostles, his disciples, and he's sending them out with the command that I want you to go, I want you to, to go in the power of the Holy Spirit, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to go preaching, I want you to go casting out demons, and I want you to go in ministry to heal the sick. And so then we get to chapter 10 in these first two verses and now it's not just the 12 that he's sending out but the scripture says that he's sending out 72 and they're going two by twos and if you were to read the rest of the 10th chapter you would discover that his command to these 72 people is to do the exact same thing that he sent his disciples to do. He wants them to go out and preach which means persuading the mind of truth. He wants them to go and cast out demons, which means liberating the soul from the things that enslave it. And he wants them to go healing the sick, which means that they are to stain the needs of hurting physical bodies. And we look at this, and I want you to understand the significance of what it means to send out the 72 disciples. In Jesus' day... Many people were reading the Old Testament and as it had been translated into Greek, the Greek translation, when you get to the story of Noah and the flood in Genesis chapter 9, they move from that into Genesis chapter 10 and even in your Bibles today, it probably, at the beginning of chapter 10 in Genesis, indicates that it is called a table of nations. A table of nations. In other words, at that known time, as they are listed, there are 72 known nations And so when Jesus uses uh, the number 72 that he's sending out, it is symbolic to them that it is symbolic of completeness, of wholeness, of totality. In other words, it means everybody to everywhere. Everybody to everywhere. And so when Jesus starts out by sending the 12, he's saying, you're going out in the power to do these things. And then as it gets close to the time when he's leaving the earth, he says, I'm sending out everybody to go everywhere, and in the power of God, I want you to minister. All Christians, the whole church, sent to do the same three things. And as you look at those two verses, it very clearly says that the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out. He uses the term sent. It comes from a Latin word which is missio, which we get our term mission. So what he is saying to the church today is I want all of you to go everywhere and be on mission everywhere you go and everything you do. In other words, when we come into the kingdom of God, He selects us and blesses us for the purpose of going out and blessing others all over the world. Now, we do some of that through missions. We do some of that through filling up shoeboxes with children's toys so that they can enjoy that. Some of it means living on mission in your job and in your home and in the area where we're at. But he wants us to live on mission. Here's what you need to know. Jesus never calls you to save you and to bless you or to heal you or to deliver you so that you can remain in the church and just live in his blessing. He does those things so that he can send you out so that you can live that way in the lives of others. We are to be distributors Of God's blessing and not accumulators of God's blessing some of you have become hoarders of the blessings of God you live with this consumer mindset by I'll go to this church as long as it provides for me in this way or I'll enjoy this ministry or I'll do this as long as it's meeting all my needs and the Lord this morning is saying those who have a generous spirit Those who have me indwelling them, the outgrowth of that will be that you understand that you come here for the purpose of equipping so that you can go out to the whole world where you are and be a blessing to them. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, the scripture says, we are God's workmanship. That term can also say masterpiece. Look at the person next to you and say, you are a masterpiece. Masterpiece. Now, for those of you that were just told that, you need to believe it. You are a masterpiece created in Christ Jesus. You're not supposed to laugh after you say that. That, that kind of takes away some of the impact when you say you're a masterpiece. <laughs> I just kind of, there was laughter all over this place. I'm going I'm to assume that's because we're filled with the joy of the Lord this morning. That, that's the way we'll look at that. You're a masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works. God prepared in advance for you to do. Now the word workmanship comes from a word that would be described to us in Greek as poemo, which we derive our word poem from. So God has written you and written into you a masterpiece by which he desires that your life be read as a beautiful poem by those that you come in contact with. Some of you are going, Pastor, if you knew the experiences of my life, my life's more like a horror story than a poem. In fact, if you knew the things that had gone on, you would be glad that God can do anything with me. But here's what I want you to understand. There are things about your life and your experiences and because of what you have been through that there are some people that only you will be able to reach. I believe that God has created as a result of the experiences of your life that he redeems... He redeems you from those things. He, he releases you from the bondage of those things and then can use you to go to people who are experiencing very similar circumstances. And as a result of those things, rather than feeling like I have to be put back and there's nothing I can do, He releases you knowing that there's only some hands that you can hold. There are certain things within people's lives and demons in their lives that only you can cast out because you've been there and you've been released to yourself. There are certain ways of reaching people that only you can do because of who you are and the experiences that you have had in your life. You're God's workmanship created to be sent out into the work that he has prepared in advance for you to do. So God desires that generosity within your life would be marked by a sentness, a mission that you have in your life, not just to come to church to see what you can get, but being here to be equipped so that you can go out and do the work of the Lord. A Christian lives a life of deep, pervasive unselfishness, and you're here to serve. But you will not be able to be generous like this until you have experienced the second generosity, or the middle verses here, which is the generosity of discipleship. You'll never feel fully equipped to give yourself away to others Until you have first learned to give yourself fully away to Jesus. Now, this middle part is fascinating because it actually records the interaction of three people who are approaching Jesus that all want to follow him. And we look at this and think, how cool is this? Because the first man apparently comes up to Jesus with great haste, and what he says is, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, we're looking at this and we're going, that man deserves to be applauded. Fantastic. He's, He's learned what it means to be generous in spirit, and yet the reaction of Jesus to him indicates that there's something further going on here. And Jesus replies to him and says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And what we draw from this is, here is a man that wanted to follow Jesus, but Jesus holds him at arm's length for a moment so that he can instruct him and basically says, whoa, 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 you're coming too fast. And in doing so, I believe that you're approaching me with the wrong idea of ministry. So let me straighten some things out for you so that when you make the decision to follow me, you do so with a firm understanding of the costs. He says, because Jesus is indicating to him, I am not the kind of Messiah who's going to save the world through winning. I'm not the kind of Messiah that's going to stand behind a a platform and say to people, if you follow me, you're going to get sick of winning. I'm not the kind of Messiah that is going to lead great victories so that everybody can see and will follow me. I'm not going to win elections. I'm not going to win battles. In fact, I'm the kind of Messiah that is coming to save the world by being arrested and condemned and beaten and humiliated and crucified. And Jesus clearly, by his words, indicates that to be a sold-out disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, will entail a lower standard of living than what this man or you and I may be accustomed to. And he says to him, are you ready for that? I'm challenging you. You came quick. Let me show you what it's going to be. Now will you follow me? So to the first guy, he says, you're coming too fast. Stop. Think about it before you commit. The next two, and I'm going to categorize them together because they both had the same type of problem. But the next two, he basically says to them, you're coming too slow. You're letting things out there control what I really want to do in you. And so it says to, he said to another man, you follow me. But the man replied, first, Lord, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service of the kingdom of God. say, what is he saying here? I think we can treat them together because they're both dealing with family situations. You see, the first, he looks at Jesus and he says, I really want to follow you, but... I need to go back and take care of some responsibilities. I I need to go and bury my father. And the other one, I need to go back and tell my family goodbye. And it looks harsh when you you look at the way Jesus responded to them. There's, There's a harshness to this that we're unaccustomed to because we know that the Holy Spirit who represents Jesus to us is such a gentle individual. But what you don't understand is that this was a highly patriarchal society. And because of that kind of society, family means everything. Now some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You wouldn't think about making a decision without consulting your family and and having the approval of the patriarch of the family. And some of you have made decisions your whole life based on the approval of dad or the approval of mom because, you know, if they were happy, it didn't matter whether you were happy or not, but everything was going to be okay as long as they were happy. And so there's this overriding power of family that Jesus begins to address here. And Jesus is speaking to people in this society and he says, here's what I perceive from the two of you. I perceive that you want to follow me, but I'm not first in your life. I perceive you want to do what's right, but if I put a pecking order of where things lie, I am not at the top. In fact, you can see this clearly because if you look at both of them and the response they had to Jesus when he calls them, they both said, I will but first let me. I will but first. Both of them are saying, I want to follow you. You're just not the most important. I'll follow you if you'll let me do this. And Jesus looks at them and both of them basically is saying to them, you're not my follower if there's conditions involved. Because if I'm not Lord of all, I'm not Lord at all. Because whatever you say when you're speaking to the Lord and you say, I want to follow you but or if, whatever you say that comes after the words but first That is really what's the most important thing in your life. And this comes as a startling revelation to us because there are many, many times when we felt the prompting of the Lord to be obedient and our first thought is, okay, just a second. Do do you require immediate obedience or can I set this on my day timer for like a week from Wednesday? I think I can work you in then. Jesus said, whatever the first thing that comes to your mind after this, but first is what is really the Lord. And then to add clarification, he uses a metaphor and a statement that really causes a striking image. And he speaks to one and he talks about putting a hand to the plow. Now for those of you like me that came from an agricultural background, although I never did hand plow behind a single horse but that is what they would have been doing and that plow would have been worth very much. It was an extremely valuable piece of equipment and. And the person who was doing the plow literally had to pick out a spot and could not take their eyes off of it while they're following the horse or the the oxen so that they can maintain a laser focus. And Jesus is saying, that's that's what it's going to mean when I become Lord of everything, that you have to have a laser focus on me. Because if you're going to be distracted by everything else, then your life is not going to be the straight line you hope it will be, but it will wander all over the place. And he says, that's the kind of focus I need from you. And then the other image he uses to get his point across as he's speaking to one, he said, let the dead bury the dead. You come with me. And we look at that and we're going, what kind of insensitive person says that? Well, we obviously know that he can't be talking literally because dead people can't bury dead people. So there had to be a symbolism here that he was speaking of. And what he's talking about is those that are spiritually dead. Let those who are spiritually dead bury the spiritually dead. I need you to focus on me. And Spiritually dead means that you are blind to the spiritual realities around you. Just like people who are dead don't know whether it's light or dark, or hot or cold, or noisy or quiet, so people that become spiritually dead don't realize what is going on around them in a spiritual world. And Jesus is saying... If you think that there's anything in life more important than me, then there will be portions of you that will always be spiritually dead. Now, now, I want this to sink in for a moment. Areas of our life that we have not completely surrendered to Him. I've often used the term, He walks down the hallway of our life and we open out almost every door. And we say, you're welcome into every place, but just don't go in there. And I would say to you today that to the degree that you hold things back from God's control is the degree to which you allow spiritual deadness to enter and have a foothold in your life. Some of you are wondering, why is it that I never feel like I can get over the hump? Why is it that I never feel like I'm completely victorious? Why is it that I always seem like I take one step forward and then two steps back? Chances are it's because there is something in your life that you have not yielded completely to him, and it's caused a dead area in your spirit, a numbness to you. It's blind spots in our life that we look at everybody else and say, that would be wrong in them, but in me, for whatever reason, I can justify this. And the blind areas in our life cause you not to have the complete victory that you desire. And many of you would have to agree this morning that Jesus is not absolutely first in your life. You love him and you will serve him to a degree, but you know that your commitment to Jesus is surpassed by your desire for other things. That if you were to make a list, yes, I love Jesus and I want to follow Him, but I choose fun first. I choose convenience on the Lord's day. I choose all of these things, and frankly, the but first become the things that I love more than Him. And The Bible indicates to us that if we would just have one glimmer of spiritual reasonableness, that it would refocus our lives. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, in the King James Version, it talks about offering your body as a living sacrifice, as holy and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Reasonable. So the point here is that you can't give yourself away to other people in ministry until you've learned to completely give yourself away to Him. But guess what? There's a point three. Three. In fact, if there was no point three, we would die in point two. We couldn't get out of there because there's a part of us that genuinely does not want to give ourselves away to Christ. And the reason is because somewhere we allow the enemy to whisper into our hearts and our minds that if we really sell out to God, he's going to hurt us. If we really sell out to God, he's going to disappoint us. If I really completely sell out and let him take control of everything... He might not lead the way that I want him to lead, and he probably won't even listen to my suggestions. And so we hold back. And in order to be able to be generous toward others and generous toward Christ, you have to understand the third point, which is the generosity of costly grace. And here in the very first part that we started to read, there's an interesting interaction that takes place. In verse 49, John is speaking. Remember, John is one that Jesus has a really close relationship with. John loves Jesus. Jesus loves him. And He says, Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said whoever is not against you is for you. Why does John try to shut down somebody else who's doing the work of God and apparently doing it effectively? Because John says he's not one of us. He's not one. He's wearing the wrong team shirt. It doesn't say disciple. It says something. It's not even our favorite color. It's all wrong, Jesus. We, we tried to stop him. He's not on our team. He's not with us. And John was telling him, we need to get control over this. We've, we've got to control these people that are out there working in your name. And, you know, Jesus, you need to franchise this ministry so that you have control over all of this stuff. And we're just the people to do it for you. And John begins to display this turf consciousness, this provincialism. That if it's not us, it's not right. And Jesus looks at him and says, stop it. Be generous. And here we see what we've been talking about through this entire series, the lack of generosity of spirit. They're they're just not generous toward this guy, even though he's not against them. But if they got upset here, it's about to get even worse as we move on. And wait till you see what happens next, because in verses 51 through 53... It says, as the time approached for him to be taken into heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. And when the disciples James and John saw this, they asked the Lord, what do you want us to do? Call fire down on heaven and destroy them? I love those guys. Jesus is is going to Jerusalem. On the way, there's a Samaritan village. He invites them, go ahead of me, make preparations there so that we can stop there for the evening. There'll be somebody there. You'll have a place, food ready. And they get there in the Samaritan village. For whatever reason, scripture seems to indicate that they are upset because Jesus' destination is not their village. Going, if he's too good for us, then we don't want him at all. And the disciples are furious. I mean, they are furious. We already know that they're much more concerned about their honor than they are the honor of Jesus, but they just don't get that generous spirit. So, so they come back to Jesus, and in this furious nature, their mind is going, they don't like us. So, Lord, the best thing that you can do is just, let's just call fire down and blow them out of the water. Let's level them. Can we please, please, please? Now, in spite of their motives, which are terribly bad... They have precedence, biblically, for what they asked to do. In fact, the reason that they asked if they could send fire down from heaven and destroy the Samaritan village is because of something that they had seen at the beginning of chapter 9 that we didn't address this morning, but... There was a time at the beginning of chapter 9 when Jesus, we know it as the transfiguration, Jesus is standing there with his disciples and suddenly his flesh becomes more transparent and the inner nature of his deity begins to shine through in such a way that the only way that those that were observing it looked at him and said, it was as bright as lightning. And then appearing with him was Moses and Elijah. And so as they're looking at this, they know Moses was the deliverer of God's people that, that took them out of slavery. They see Elijah, the prophet, who's the the ultimate prophet. And then there's Jesus, who is the ultimate one that delivers us from the slavery of sin. And Jesus, who's the ultimate prophet of God, sent to bring the truth to his people. And so Jesus is superior to both of them as prophet and deliverer. And what is intriguing about this is the disciples knew that both Moses and Elijah had an experience with the fire of God. Moses experienced the fire of God when he was on the mountain, and Elijah, in a really, really fascinating passage of Scripture in 2 Kings chapter 1, at that time, he and King Ahab of Israel were not friends at all. They just didn't like each other. And Ahab was angry, so he sent a captain and 50 men to go and arrest Elijah. And the Bible says that when they found him, Elijah's sitting up on the top of the hill. The captain and the army come to the bottom of the hill and see him up there, and they're going, Man of God, you come down here so that we can arrest you. And Elijah sits up there and says, If I'm a man of God, then may fire from heaven fall and destroy all of you. (laughs) Wiped them out. So Ahab sends another captain, and another 50 men. They come up there, and they find him sitting up there. They probably had to maneuver maneuver around the the smoldering bodies of those that came before. And the captain yells, man of God, come down this mountain so that we could take you. And he goes, if I'm a man of God, may fire from heaven fall and destroy you. (laughs) Now, how would you like to be the third person? (laughs) Because there was a third person, and his attitude was completely different. So Elijah did this twice. So I'm sure that in the apostles' mind, they're already thinking, okay, we already know that Elijah's called fire down from heaven. We're really enjoying the new experience of the power that God has given us to go out and minister. We're seeing people delivered from demonic powers. We're seeing them saved. We're seeing filled with the the, the Spirit of God in, in some great ways. And so they know in their mind that if Elijah called fire down and destroyed the wicked, how much more if the rejection of the prophet Elijah warranted the fire of God to come down and destroy the wicked, wouldn't it be true that the rejection of Jesus The true prophet of God would warrant that kind of fire even more. It would seem logical. And so they come to the Lord and say, do you want us to call fire down on them? And Jesus rebukes them. In fact, as you look at this terminology, it would be similar to Jesus looking at them and going, would you guys just shut up? And then he turns around and walks off and leaves them. What's the difference and why? Why? Why the difference between Jesus and the disciples? In the eyes of the disciples, everybody that's not on our team must be stopped. Anyone who is against us need to be destroyed by fire. Why the difference between Jesus and, uh, and Elijah? When Elijah saw the enemies, he called down fire, and Jesus tells the guys, shut up, we're not doing that. Why Why the difference? Here's the answer. Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 12, verses 49 and 50, that he did come to bring fire, but here's how he describes it. I've come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it's completed. Tim Keller states, as he did a study on this passage, that the reason this passage is so astounding is the way that the Hebrew literature is often written. One of the rules and ways that they made their point is through parallelism and repetition. And it was very typical for two statements to be side by side. Each one was a restatement of the other. In other words, things weren't said just once, they were said twice. And the second time was a restatement of the way it was described the first. So when we look at this passage of Scripture in light of the way that they write Hebrew literature, Jesus says, I have come to bring fire, the fire of God, and oh, how I wish it was already kindled. And then while they are wondering what he means, he restates it like this, and he says, I have come to endure a baptism. And oh, how I am distressed, and that word distressed can also mean crushed, until it is completed. Now, we look at this and we're going, we already know that Jesus was baptized in water, so what kind of baptism is he talking about here? What baptism? Baptism is crushing him while he even thinks about it coming. And here's what he's talking about. When the soldiers came for Jesus, when he was in the garden and he was about to be arrested, Peter jumps up and he swings the sword to defend him and he cuts the ear off of one of the the soldiers. And what does Jesus do? He reaches down and picks it up, brushes the dirt off of it, and slaps the thing back on the side of his head. And Peter is astounded. They're enemies of yours. Why don't we call fire down on them? Jesus says, no. No. And then when they were hammering the nails in his hands and hammering him to the cross in his hands and his feet, why didn't he call fire down on them? Instead, the words recorded for us are, Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. It's exactly the opposite of the way Elijah treated the enemies of God. So why did Jesus do that? Here it is. Because Jesus came not to bring judgment on the earth. Jesus came to bear judgment for the earth. Let that sink in for a minute. Jesus didn't come to call down the fire of judgment on other people. But he came so that the fire of God's wrath would fall on him. That what we deserve to be destroyed in the flame of God's wrath, Jesus said, I've come to take that for you. So rather than comparing me to Elijah sitting on the hill, you need to compare me to the soldier sitting at the bottom. I've come to take that punishment for the people. I've come to bear the fire. And the only fire that comes to us after Jesus takes the fire of this judgment is He gives to us the fire of the indwelling Holy Spirit to live within us, to motivate us, to move us so that we can go out in the generosity of His Spirit and minister to people as He would. He says that's what a generous person does. So when you hear the call of God... Please give yourself to Christ. Give yourself away totally, completely. Don't hold anything back from Him. Be radically generous with the gift of your being. Because when you see Him giving His total self away for you, it becomes a response of love to give generously of our entire being to Christ and His work. The more we begin to comprehend the costliness of His grace the more we begin to comprehend the power of what he did and how he fills you and heals you and with his love, how he enables you to give yourself away generously in all of the gifts that he's given to you. We conclude by thinking these three things. Number one, to be a disciple is a radical thing. It's a radical thing. Jesus says, I wanna be ahead of your money. I want to be ahead of your job I want to be ahead of your personal expectations I want to be ahead of your relationships I've got to be before any of that and so when I call and you say yes I'll follow but first then it indicates something else is at the top of the list and I want you to rewrite that secondly he's saying this Jesus says my followers never call fire down on people We are living in one of the most contentious ages I have ever seen. I've never seen a more divided country. I've never seen a place where everybody is on their blogs and online calling fire down on the enemies. On the other side of the aisle, it's getting ugly because we all want to be right and we all want the other side destroyed. And Jesus goes, not my disciples. No, 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 no. Church, listen to me. He says, my disciples don't call down fire on the other side. My disciples serve them. My disciples love them. My disciples understand my heart is generously giving, generously giving, but my disciples are not going to be like that to call fire down on people. And lastly, don't be afraid to follow him because he knows what you need. He knows exactly what you need and he knows how to deal with you. There's this really fascinating part in scripture in John 10 when Jesus is coming He's been summoned Lazarus was sick He waited Lazarus died And as he's coming there He gets within sight And Martha comes running up to him And basically looks at Jesus And said If you'd have been here on time My brother wouldn't have died And Jesus speaks to her Very harshly for the time And he he says I am the resurrection and the life Kind of yanks her to her senses Just a few moments later as he continues the walk, he sees Mary, the other sister, and she comes to him and she falls at his feet and basically says the same thing in through her tears. And it says, and Jesus stopped, and the scripture says, Jesus wept. He cried with her. And he puts an arm around her and he comforts her and you're going, why? Why treat the sisters differently that we're going through the very same thing? Because Jesus knows when you need to be kicked in the rear end and he knows when you need a hug. And so he treats each of us differently in the circumstances of our life. Some of you need his boot right in the rear. Some of you need hugged. And he knows it all. And he'll deal with us each individually. And so today as we deal with the aspect of being generous in who we are and the gifts that we have and the way that we can address other people, there's something I would like you to do for me today. We have just gone through a period of about the last 12 months or so where we've seen some real growth take place in our church. And as a result of that, our ministries are beginning to be stretched. And we're not begging you, but we're saying there's opportunities for you to find places of ministry where you can exercise a spirit of generosity in some of the talents and gifts that God has given to you. There isn't a seat pocket in front of you a list of some of the ministries that we have available in our church and i'd like you to take that out if you would please and i'm going to pray in just a moment and as you're taking that out i'm going to i'm going to ask our ministry leaders that are here today if you would please come and and line up along the front because here's what's going to happen i'm going to pray and then you're going to begin to make some check boxes check marks on some boxes and here's what's going to happen you are not committing yourself to anything and these leaders are not committing themselves to you. What you're saying is, I have an interest in learning more about this and and what we would like to do is, is after you check those, we're gonna collect them up here in in this wicker basket and then our ministry leaders will look through these and if there are some of them that have seen some of you interested in their ministries, they're going to contact you so that you can see what goes on, so that you can watch, maybe, maybe experience a little bit about kind of serving there first to see if it's a good fit because not everything's a great fit. But we want the opportunity to express generosity in our gifts to our community. So let me pray with you. Father, I ask that as the word was spoken this morning that you're beginning to deal with our hearts and minds about All of the areas of our life that we said, yes, I'll follow you, but first. And that, Lord, today we would rewrite the list. In spite of your marvelous grace that did not call fire down on us, but took it for us, may we give ourselves away to you first and then to others, demonstrating a spirit of generosity. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like you to take a minute, if you would, and just look over that list. and check mark or two on areas that you might like to check to see if it's an area where you could serve. Some of the ministries that we have, especially those that deal with minors, requires that you are a member of the church and requires that you go through background checks. We are very very protective of our children and I'm not ashamed of that. It's not easy, but when we tell people that we want their children to be as safe here as is possible we mean it. There are other ministries that you might be interested in that don't require being a member of the church but require you to be friendly. So if you're a sourpuss, do not sign up to be a greeter. We'll find someplace else for your sour nature just to honor God. If there's other things there you think, you know what, I would love to experience and see what this looks like and how I fit into all of that, then I'd like you to do that. And now I'm going to ask that you would stand with me the reason our leaders are up here is for this purpose. After you come up, you're gonna, you're gonna put your form in, in this little basket here. And then I'd like you to walk along and see the leader who may represent one of the ministries that you are interested in and just get to know them a little bit. We're trying to connect names and faces with people so that we can uh, be better at engaging people and connecting with you in ways that will be meaningful. There's something powerful about a church working in unity for the same common cause of letting the name of Jesus be made famous, and that's our goal here.